namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasam <coughs> this uh, next chapter uh, is called Buddha Knows Dhamma and this was a talk given on the 2nd of August 2001 uh, as all of these at the Leicester Summer School I went to Thailand to become a monk in 1966 the forest tradition was already becoming highly regarded there. Prior to decent roads and railways in Thailand, not many people knew about the Dutanga monks, these forest monks. Now they're the most famous. Even Ajahn Mahabur got his picture in the Guardian newspaper recently and has become a sort of celebrity international figure. Over the years, there's been a lot of disillusionment with the traditional town and city monasteries in Thailand and scandals have been reported about them in Thai newspapers. So it is the forest tradition that is now revered. Even the king has gravi gravitated towards it. Whatever the king does, everybody else tends to do. Now in the Thai forest tradition, practices are given around the words Buddha, Buddha, the awakened. It is used as a kind of mantra. Instead of wandering in thought and getting caught up in conceptual proliferations, one can use this two-syllable word, Buddha. Umpocha used it, so did Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Man, and all these celebrated Thai forest Ajans. They based their practice on the discipline, Vinaya, and mindfulness around daily life, and then the Buddha can be used as a mantra. If one repeats this mantra over and over again, the tendency for the mind to wander diminishes, and after a while, just these two syllables, Buddha, sustain themselves. One can get to the point then of even dropping those two syllables, and there remains a sense of emptiness <coughs> and tranquility, which is the result of the cessation of the proliferating, the proliferating thinking mind. So this Buddha can be used as a kind of inner chant and tranquilizing technique. Tranquilizing meaning <coughs> making the mind calm rather than unconscious. Like a, I think of tranquilizers as being uh, medicines that knock knock somebody out, but um, Lumpur is using the word tranquilizing there as in a, helping the mind to be to be peaceful and quiet. <coughs> I found that its real value, however, was in reminding me of the inner Buddha, this sense of awakened attention this taking refuge in the Buddha, this Buddhang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Buddha, as we say. Putting this into the <coughs> awareness, the development of attention to life, has great significance. You begin to see the power of the word Buddha itself as the awakened, that which is awake, aware. Buddha can, rem can remain in our minds as a kind of historical figure. We can talk about Buddha some kind of force in the universe. Alternatively, we can speculate about it. 
in terms of insight meditation practice. However, we do not speculate about anything. We do not try to figure out whether there actually was a Buddha or question whether his life is historically accurate. Can we prove the Buddha actually walked on seven lotuses when he was born? I begin to say we won't believe it until we have actual historical proof. But this is ridiculous. That's just concerning ourselves with things that, that aren't really important and can only be guessed at. Either believe or don't believe, but don't make a problem about it. Buddha, then, is something we can internalize. So as uh, was um, mentioned in the previous readings, the word uh, bud, uh, Buddha comes from uh, the term meaning awake, uh, one who is awake, uh, the word itself, Buddha. This means uh, uh, awake, and I understand that um, in Russian, we have a Russian speaker here, that the, uh, the word for uh, waking up in the morning or an alarm clock is, there you go. <laughs> So it's a kind of uh, spiritual, Buddha is a spiritual alarm clock. So somehow the word made it from India to Russia and got sustained its meaning there. So that the uh, <coughs> this quality that Lumpur is focusing on is this, uh, uh, say, capacity for the mind to be awake, this sense of awakened attention, as he puts it. And then frequently uh, in this talk here, he mentions, can we prove the Buddha was actually born? And uh, do we need historical proof that one of the, the themes that Lumpur would often make is that whether or not the, the Buddha lived exactly when um, he's supposed to have done or the, all the things that are supposed to have happened in his life actually happened or, um, or uh, how completely verifiable are all of the, the teachings of the Pali Canon. That's, uh, that's not the significant thing because uh, we have the, the teachings have come down to us uh, in a sufficient form where we have the Four Noble Truths and then we can explore for ourselves, we look at our own lives, our own minds, and, and see whether these qualities that are talked about in the teaching are actually present in our own experience or not. I have a, a memory of um, him once saying uh, something in, a, in one of these, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon Dhamma talk, one of the talks he gave here in the, in the 80s or early 90s, he said, <clears throat> you know, that all of Buddhism could have been made up by a, um, what was it, it was something like a, a, um, a drunk Hungarian medicine seller in the 14th century could have been kind of conjured up as someone, something, a story this fellow was telling some friends in a bar and invented the whole of Buddhism just as a kind of um, a, 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 a tall story. And, <clears throat> but yet, if, if he came up with the Four Noble Truths and it's come down to us today, does it really matter? And you can see for quite a number of people that were gathered there, it was a bit of a heretical statement. <laughs> But the point that he was making, even if the whole thing was, was sort of a, uh, <coughs> the Buddha never lived and walked and talked in India all those years ago, and it, the whole thing was made up by uh, a, a drunk med uh, medicine seller in the 14th century somewhere in Europe, just as a, a tall story to tell their friends in the bar, then uh, does it really matter if the Four Noble Truths came out of it? Well, here they are, and we can apply them, we can see whether they actually have meaningful um, influence on our lives and can they guide us towards uh, greater understanding. So he was being deliberately provocative there, but also it's something that the mind can focus on. You, know, you have a lot of these mythological tales, like when the, the Buddha was, uh, in, uh, was born, the Bodhisattva, he's supposed to have um, been able to, to walk and talk as soon as he was born, as soon as he, uh, his mother Mahamaya gave birth to him. 
then he's supposed to have taken seven steps with a lotus flower popping up from the ground under each, uh, each, uh, each footstep. And then after taking seven steps, then he raised his hand in the air and said, I am the leader in the world, I am the foremost in the world. So <coughs> walking at all, uh, uh, immediately after birth, is pretty strange. Talking is pretty strange. And the, the lotus flowers popping up under each foot is, just sort of puts the cherry on top, or puts the lotus, puts the lotus on top. Um, and so we say, well, can you prove that really happened? Or, you know, how could, how could that be? But um, the, uh, the point is not to, f- uh, say, to focus on every detail of the, uh, the mythology, but rather to, to, to listen and recognize, well, this is, uh, this is a story that is told, whether it's true or, or it's not true. Can we take the, the, um, the qualities that have come down to us as being emblematic or, or characteristic of the Buddha and uh, take the, the teachings that have, have reached us and can we apply them? Do they make sense in our lives? And Do the, the practices, the traditions, the forms, do they still work for us? And in uh, the whole approach towards Buddhism is one of, of try it out and see. It's a ehi pasiko, come and see. Take a look and experiment for yourself. Don't take things on, on trust or by um, blind belief, but take it and use it. And if it brings benefit, then, then follow it. If it doesn't bring benefit, then, then leave it aside. When we say Buddhang Saranangachami, the traditional Theravada formula in, in Pali for taking refuge in the Buddha, it can be undertaken as a kind of ceremony, or it can become perfunctory. People just saying it in parrot fashion, not realizing the significance of it as a sense of refuge. In meditation, however, we're dealing with the forces of nature, and a lot of them are pretty terrifying and dark. So if we don't feel a sense of safety within ourselves, we could become very frightened by things that arise in consciousness. They can be threatening on a personal level. But in this sense of refuge, we transcend the personal habits we have. The point is, we need a mirror in order to see our own personality as just a series of reflections rather than as a reality. So, buddho is like that mirror. You can, you can also call it mindfulness, awakenedness, or awareness. I've used buddho for years in my own practice, and I've found it very helpful. If your mind is very active, thinking, proliferating, you can keep it busy with something like buddho, rather than worrying about whether the sky is going to fall on, in on you, or what's going to happen next year. Mala beads, like a rosary, rosary beads. Mala beads can also be used while uh, using the buddho, 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 just keeping up this refrain and keeping the mind busy in a way that is not just following and reinforcing negative habits of worry, fear and anxiety about yourself, the future or the past. If you're going to think, just think buddho. As I say, you can use it with mala beads, which work very well with this, or you can use it with the breath, inhaling bud, exhaling to. This keeps your attention. Your mind doesn't wander. You're just thinking this two-syllable word, just deliberately thinking in a way that does not convey proliferation. Buddha is independent, so it doesn't lead you into thoughts about something else. Any questions, thoughts, reflections on that before we continue? Okay, so that's uh, um, using that uh, a, as a mantra and uh, also using mala beads together with, with that as something that is um, uh, 
not enormously common in the, the Thai tradition, but uh, can be can be used. And uh, these are also things that uh, Lumpur Cha tried. So he he would use the Buddha mantra, particularly with the breath, uh, and that was be very commonly what he would teach when people were being introduced to meditation. The initial instruction he would often give is to develop the mindfulness of breathing together with uh, the breath. He uh, he described his own use of mala beads or his own kind of creative, uh, uh, say, uh, way of. He had he had uh, some some. Uh, he didn't have any uh, uh, mala beads on a string, but he he got a collection of, I think, seeds or stones, um, and so would just would take one by one and kind of drop them into a tin. And he thought, well, this this isn't really working for me. So he he tried those kind of things out, but um, didn't. Tend to pursue them himself, but he used the um, Buddha mantra with the breath as a uh, very much an ongoing practice, and and particularly if the breath, uh, the, just the feeling of the breath, is too subtle or too difficult for the mind to get uh, a, a sort of a, a, a hold on, then using the thinking mind to repeat that word internally it gives a bit more uh, grain or a bit more of a, a of a solid object for the attention to to lock onto, and so that then. That um, uh, use of the mantra buddho buddho with the, with the breath uh, is essentially a, a mindfulness of breathing practice, but also um, uh, using the thinking mind as a way of, of strengthening that, supporting that, and then also as uh, Lumpur Sumedha was saying, and as he'll go on to a bit more in the next section, that what you're saying with the word buddho is uh, is awake, 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 so that you're the very meaning of the word that you're reciting is encouraging that quality of, of alertness and clarity of mind. Now, being the Buddha, being Buddha, is the really important one. How does that strike you? Arjun Samedo thinks he's the Buddha. But if I think I am the Buddha, that's not being Buddha, is it? That's my personality thinking some deluded thought. Being Buddha is not a personality thing. It's not a personal attainment, but an immanent act of attention. However, if I be Buddha, as it were, that reflects the Ajahn Sumedho, the sense of me being this person that wants to be or doesn't want to be or whatever. So uh, that's a, an important distinction to make. So if you say um, being Buddha, being uh, literally means, is intended to mean not being awake. But if the ego grabs hold of it and said, oh, therefore, I'm, I'm a Buddha. If I'm, I'm awake, therefore, I'm a Buddha. I'm the Buddha. He says, Ajahn Samedha thinks he's the Buddha. Then that's the ego grasping hold of that uh, perception and then uh, that sort of rail, uh, that kind of uh, derails the whole uh, experience. Similarly, you could say, I am, uh, with a, a phrase like, I am Dhamma or I am God or something like that. But say, well, uh, yes, you can say uh, I am Dhamma in, in so far as every aspect of one's mental and physical being is part of, of uh, the Dhamma, part of the natural order. But if it's the ego grabbing hold of it, say I'm the Dhamma, that's what I am, then it's, it short circuits the whole experience and turns into a kind of madness. So occasionally one meets uh, people who've followed that track. Some of them have lived here in the past <laughs> and certainly come to visit from time to time. And it's a, uh, it's a, um, in a way, it's a, a wrongly grasped insight. So what they, um, there's a quality of 
uh, what's called uh, a kind of meditation madness called sanya vipalasa, which literally means the incorrect grasping or the incorrect holding of a perception. So that then there might be a genuine insight in that, say, in the meditation. Oh, yeah, the mind, this awareness is Buddha. Um, this is this is awakeness. That's what's real. This is the the only real thing. Aha! And then then the the, the deluded mind. Sort of steps in and says, "Oh, therefore I am the Buddha. I am totally enlightened. I am. I am the Dhamma. That's what I am." And so then the um, the, uh, the that that insight then, rather than bearing fruit in terms of genuine liberation and peacefulness and clarity, it um, it gets kind of like a like a machine that gets short circuited. You get sparks flying everywhere, and the machine doesn't work. And so, and so that uh, it's a uh, um, a kind of a, a the effects of that wrong grasping then creates much more con- uh, confusion and difficulty if it's not if it's not challenged. So then he says, um, however, if I be Buddha, as it were, uh, being that uh, awakenedness or being that that wakefulness, that reflects that reflects the Ajahn Sumato. So that, that aware mind. So rather than than saying uh, uh, Ajahn Amaro is uh, is is the Buddha. Say that that awake buddho buddha quality, that awake mind knows the perceptions of Ajahn Amaro, these sounds of this voice, the feelings of this body, the um, <coughs> the words that are being chosen and are being spoken. That those are all uh, Amaro's stuff that's arising and passing away, and that's being known by the quality of awareness. So, uh, as I was saying yesterday, and, and uh, um, uh, said quite a, a few times recently. That which knows the person is not a person. So that that quality of awareness is knowing, uh, knowing timness or or um, uh, knowing Eleonora-ness. It's like it's a or, or Jaya Dhamma-ness. It's like there's that aware quality. It's not female. It's not male. It's not old. It's not young. It has no personal qualities, like like gravity. You know, it's not my gravity or your gravity. It's just gravity. We all. We're all affected by that. We feel it here in this particular spot because of the karma of this birth. But it's not my gravity or your gravity. It's just gravity. So similarly, that awareness is not sort of mine or yours. It's a, it's a natural, universal quality. Uh, but it's felt here. It's, it's, it's active and known here. And so that aware mind knows those personal qualities arising and passing away. So that the... <coughs> the, um, the Aspects of our life, this body, these feelings, these ideas, these memories, these emotions, these perceptions, they're, they're coming and going and changing. And from the outside, it's, it look, it, in a way, it's described as, well, it's me, it's Ajahn Amro doing the reading, and um, these are my perceptions. But from the inside, as it were, there's the awareness of sound arising and passing away, feeling arising and passing away, perceptual uh, images, uh, visual forms arising and passing away, sounds arising and passing away. So that which knows the changes in the experiential field that is is not personal. It's and this that's the quality that uh, Lumpur is talking about here. That's the the refuge uh, and the the quality of awakened awareness or butho, uh, or he says as you can call it mindfulness, awakeness, awareness, knowing all of those qualities. So that when we t- taking refuge is. In being Buddha or being uh, being that awake quality, and then uh, <coughs> the refuge is that then uh, that awareness can know pleasant, painful, beautiful, ugly, comfortable, uncomfortable, 
and is not shaken or, or, or confused or deluded by that. Just like a, a mirror. It says like a, the Buddha is like that mirror. So just as a mirror, uh, when you, you, come in, you come into a bathroom in the morning, you just woken up and you, and you look in the mirror, you know, the mirror never says, oh, go away, take, take that away, I can't bear it at this time of the morning. We might feel that, but the mirror will never say that. The mirror reflects whatever's there without, it doesn't say beautiful or ugly uh, <coughs> or, or any uh, kind of judgment whatsoever. It just reflects the image that is uh, projected into it without, without bias. And so that uh, <coughs> the refuge of Buddha, why it's a refuge, is that when the mind really embodies that quality of, of awakeness and awareness and knowing, then it is uh, that awareness is undisturbable. It's um, uh, it's not something that can be can be shaken or confused or or, or even clouded. The more pr- more uh, solidly grounded that quality is, so that regardless of what's happening in the experiential field, uh, comfort, comfort, discomfort, praise, criticism, uh, you know, uh, brightness or darkness. Uh, suffering or happiness, then that awareness is not confused or, or, or deluded and not uh, agitated or, or disturbed uh, by that. So those teachings on the uh, that was uh, we were talking about the other day, the Anidasana Vinyana, that Dhampur um, Samadhi would also quote very often, is uh, uh, that passage about um, Vinyana Anidasana, the the consciousness or the the awareness which is. Um, uh, formless, which is infinite, which is radiant, um, that uh, doesn't give any footing. This, that's that quality of awareness is where long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure uh, can find no footing. They can't get any traction there. So that quality of awakened awareness then knows the world, but is not limited by the world. It, it is um, attuned to the world, and, and then part of uh, of that attunement is then. The, that aware, awake mind, knowing the the way things are, and seeing what's sort of, as it were appearing in the mirror, then that um, will also uh, be the the source of uh, of guidance towards what is wholesome, what is noble, what is what is beautiful, and so that then part of that uh, that awareness is the 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 um, the mind's responsivity or the mind's ability to to uh, say, <coughs> to act in terms of what it's seeing. So if you see um, someone who's fallen over, then there's a natural movement towards that person to help them uh, after they've fallen and injured themselves. So it's a, so when we talk about being Buddha or being aware or being being awake or being the the watcher again, as I said a few times before, it doesn't mean we turn ourselves into a kind of um, stupid. A non, you know, not uh, an abstracted observer, like being the one who knows. The sort of, I'm just receiving data here, you know, like turning ourselves into a, a CCTV camera, like just re- recording the data of the universe. It's it's not that way because it's a it's a responsive system, and so that the if the the mind sees something unwholesome or, or harmful, then it will it will recoil away from it. If it sees something wholesome and, and noble, it will move towards it. And that responsivity is uh, is an attribute of that quality of, of of awakened awareness. Just like the the Buddha is completely detached from the world, but cares for the well-being of the world infinitely. 
So that, uh, that's why the, the, the Buddha is not just the Lokavitu, the knower of the world, is also the, uh, uh, that uh, the Buddha mind, the Buddha heart, is the one that has infinite compassion, loving kindness uh, for the world as well. Yes. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, now, the uh, um, generally, if there is mindfulness is well established, that mindful awareness is well established, then um, that will have a, uh, a a buffering effect on the thinking mind. So it'll mean that the, the mind won't, the thinking mind won't tend to just chase after one one thought after another after another after another, because of that the the impact of that. Um, uh, say that awareness. Uh, however, there are some times where, like, the, uh, there's a condition where, the say that there's an illness and the mind is feverish or you're very sleepy, um, and there can be a, like a, a constant flow of, of thoughts and ideas and memories and images and such like that are going along, and and um, or another instance is where something very um, impactful has happened, something very shocking or something very um, exciting has happened. So there's a, it's, there's a, a massive stimulus to the thinking mind. That you, there's a lot going on. And so uh, in those instances, there's, there's a lot of activity, but the mind can still be completely mindful of that. It's really a lot of thoughts going on. Or, right? These are really strong emotions. Just like you can be somewhere where, the, where it's a physically loud sound. Like you're in a train station, and, and, or you're, and there's uh, uh, a lot of people moving around, or there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of noise, a conversation. You can be in a, a busy, noisy place, but the mind can be aware of all of that noise, but yet not caught up in the in the content, not 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 reacting to that. So it knows that noisiness, that agitation, that busyness, but without being caught in it. So that, but the the uh, generally, if it's not some kind of Intense situation, then if there's mindful, if there's a well-established mindfulness, then that the the proliferating mind, also where it's, you know, one one idea chases after another, after another, after another, and they never really complete themselves. You know, no individual thought sort of is like a whole sentence with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's just one uh, idea associating with another. That will that will be diminished a lot. The effect of, of awareness diminishes. That. When there is a very strong stimulus like someone speaking as you say that's very difficult to observe mm-hmm. without getting entangled in it. I find that one can have that ideal in mind and okay, there is stickiness, being aware of there is stickiness, let's just observe that. But it's so difficult to really not get sucked into mm-hmm. one angle of the mind with mm-hmm. stickiness. So I'm wondering to arrive at that place where one can really be equanimous and simply observing Mm-hmm. Very difficult. So, is that because it, 
insights I get from there, or is it a gradual sort of feeling of the sense and then you gradually get to the end? Like how, how does one arrive at that serenity? Patient endurance, generally. <laughs> Slow. Now, it's one of the reasons why we, we practice and also part of the uh, Dutanga tradition of uh, forest monastic way of life is developing a lot of, of, of uh, patient endurance. And um, <coughs> over and over again, trying to uh, work with those things. I was having a conversation earlier about all-night sittings. You know, that, uh, you know, you're in a situation where you're, you know, you're sleepy, you're trying to stay awake, and your mind is kind of you're lurching around all over the place and weird kind of memories and images and, and disconnected thoughts. So, but you're deliberately doing that. You're deliberately putting yourself in a situation uh, so that you, you're, you're able to develop the skill that like, even when the odds are against you, it's, it's tough to work with, but then you, it helps you to develop those skills. Like if you were going to go, uh, go hiking in the mountains, then you, you go out and you, go, you do a, a lot of walking, you do as many hill climbs as you can so you can get fit, so that when, you, when you're really in the mountains, then you can, you can deal with it, your body is prepared for that. So a lot of that is um, patient endurance, but also endurance is maybe not quite the right word. It's sort of development of, of steadfastness or that sense of resolution and being ready to work with, with things. It's, it's, it's not, uh, for most, most instances, like 99 times out of 100, it wouldn't be some sort of sudden insight that gives you uh, the ability to be clear about those states, but rather um, that... Uh, just working with that over and over and over again, and then and then when the, when the times come when you you find that the mind can work with it, and it's really clear. Oh, look at this! This is this is like completely out of control, but there it goes. And like I, I often mention, how um, when I was in in California, um, I was uh, I, I had melanoma and I was being treated for cancer with um, both allopathic treatment and Tibetan medicine, and um, I was prescribed this particular kind of Tibetan medicine. Um, there's a very, very good doctor, and she was extremely reliable. But this particular medicine she gave me had this very um, dramatic effect. And so I was, I was having auditory hallucinations. Like I was hearing uh, things that weren't, quote-unquote, really there. Um, and I was living in this little kuti. It was the winter retreat time. And I was living in this little kuti, and they had, there was a, a, a stream had formed coming down the hillside, and it ran um, uh, across the walking path in front of the kuti. So there was this little bubbling stream outside of the kuti that was sort of running all the time. And my mind, I'd be sitting in my kuti, and my mind was making the sound of the stream into music. So one day, it would be like this endless Beethoven symphony. And it was, it was absolutely clear. It's like, I mean, I couldn't write, I can't write music, but. If you could have written music, you could have you know, copied down this new Beethoven symphony. And then the next day it was Wagner. And the, kind of, the ride of the Valkyries kind of with, with variations. And, and you think, that's really, that because yes, yesterday it was really like Beethoven. This is totally different. This is, this is a Wagnerish type. The next day it was Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you know, and, it was, and, and so there was enough it would sustain itself, so it wasn't blurry at all. It was very distinct and continuous. You know, I could sit there and listen to Led Zeppelin for like four hours, or Wagner, or Beethoven, or whatever. And so the mind is aware. This is a hallucination. You know, there is not an orchestra outside my kuti. It's the winter time. It's California. It's raining. So 
of what I, what I'm hearing is not what's happening. That's, that that's a, that's a stream of water, but the the mind was was filled with this very clear auditory hallucination that's not there, but it's there. And so it was a good opportunity to recognize this is the mind in a, a deluded state and to, to be able to know, well, this is just a, a creation of the mind. It's taken a few perceptions and it's woven it together into this particular music. This is created by this mind. And then I, I found that I could just observe that and to, to, to know that that was there, not get caught into it, not thinking I'm going crazy or will I ever recover, or, uh, but rather just to be able to know this is a hallucination. This is not anything that's, that's real. But, uh, and it's very intense. But uh, the mind can, uh, can know that intensity of, of feeling, intensity of hallucination, knowing it's false. <laughs> it's, there isn't a 60-piece orchestra outside my city. It's all, all Led Zeppelin. Whatever. They are, uh, it's not there. So that it's, it's knowing a deluded state that's got a very intense impact. But without being caught in it, so you then when you, you, you those kind of things arise from time to time, then uh, you can use in a way use them to develop that kind of skill and recognize oh look at that you know you can be fully aware of something that is completely mind made that's got a, an intense presence without getting without trying to push it away without getting lost in it just knowing it as it is and uh, not trying to do anything with it and so then that. Uh, knowing that that can be done, and, and in a sense, getting a feel for how you do it, like like learning to ride a bicycle, or learning how to, you know, any other kind of, uh, of um, physical skill. Uh, you you basically you, you get a feel of how the mind can do that, can relate to those experiences, um, and not make anything out of it. So then, when other other times come, where it's not a hallucination, but there's a a um, the mind is, is very busy because of being, like, say, responsible for a work project, or you've had an argument with another monk, a okay, reverberating, um, and that uh, uh, you can, in the same way, okay, well, this is not Wagner. <laughs> this is the, 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 the memory about that argument I just had with that monk, and that the, the mind can, you find you, you've developed that skill to a certain degree, and you can know those that flow of thoughts and how they're associating with each other and you're not adding anything to it but you can't just say stop and, and make it stop it's not going it's not going to stop so then in those times you, you realize it's a it's like a, a an ability like, like being able to ride a bicycle or to swim or to to uh, you know, uh, to speak a particular language you've, you've learned that skill so you can draw upon it sure Thank you. 
Yeah, I, uh, the other day I was saying how uh, often sleepiness is not to do with energy levels, it's to do with self-hatred. Uh, oftentimes the main cause for sleepiness in meditation is is uh, is uh, aversion directed towards yourself. And that, uh, strangely enough, the, uh, the one of the best ways of dealing with sleepiness is to practice loving-kindness. Which is a bit of an oblique approach, but it, it tends to, to be very effective because of that. So to continue, I have different names now. When you get into the monastic system, you get all kinds of names. My mother named me Robert. In my generation in the States, however, two-syllable names were too much to expect, so it ended up as Bob all the time. And I never liked the sound of that, Bob. So I was glad to change it to Sumato. I think it's a little more dignified. But in Thailand, when you get to my age, you get these venerable monikers as well, like Lung Po, which means something like revered father, and things like this. But these are just conventions that have come into the system. They're not meant to be things that hold you on a personal level. The real refuge, of course, is in the awareness. Buddha, then, is Buddha knows Dhamma. This is the paradigm of consciousness where there is the subject and the object. When I talk about the absolute subject, this is the buddho, you can put it that way. You, know, so you can also call it refuge in the Buddha, or being Buddha. It is just a tension of the moment where you rest in this point of stillness and silence, and you can't get beyond this point. You can go out onto the turning wheel, but if you stay in the still point, T.S. Eliot's The Still Point of the Turning World is a good image. That is being Buddha. Now this is just for contemplation, for beginning to see how to use traditional words to actually help us to awaken and be attentive, rather than leaving them as exotic terms that we adopt as part of our vocabulary. See them as useful ways of reminding yourself to be in this state of attention, this awareness. The relationship of Buddha to Dhamma, then, is that which is awake knows the Dhamma. So the Dhamma is the truth of the way it is. That word Dhamma is all about our experience in the present. It's all Dhamma. Conditions are Dhammas. They arise and cease. And the Amata Dhamma, the deathless or the unborn, is the reality that we begin to recognize in this position of Buddha, of being Buddha. Sometimes we say, well, that's life, that's the way it is, in a kind of negative, complaining way, with a sense of resignation to unfairness or injustice or whatever. We say, well, what can you do? That's the way it is. But that's not Buddha knowing Dhamma. In the sense of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the way it is, has no judgment in it. 
it isn't a question of comparing the way it is with the ideals of what we would like or what we or what should be. It's simply like this. And there is a sense of sustaining this buddho, this attention. I find also that by just resting in the sound of silence, this kind of resonating vibration, the thinking mind stops. And yet there is a sense of being in this pure presence, this state of being Buddha that is quite natural and sustainable. This is not a cultivated, unnatural state. Umpo Cha used to call it our real home. It's where we can rest, where we can be, and it's natural. So we don't have to make it, hold it, or keep depending on conditions to allow it to exist. When we begin to recognize this, we realize that it is, that it is the way it is, all the time, whether conditions are pleasant or horrible. This is the refuge. Learning to trust in this refuge allows us to integrate into, into the life that we have with all its distractions, problems, difficulties, pleasures and pains. Once we really get a feeling and an understanding of this reality, we can go wherever we want and always be in this state of awareness because it isn't destroyed by the conditions that we are experiencing. This, however, takes real surrender and faith. So this uh, phrase, the Buddha knows the Dhamma, um, this uh, again was a very, very regular theme of uh, Lumpur Sameto's teachings, and um, that uh, <coughs> he used to uh, speak very directly in terms of how un our habitual way of thinking and seeing things is me and my problems, yeah, me and my fear problem, or me and my anger problem, or me and my, my responsibilities, my duties, me and my world. And he would say, uh, and it was also, um, this was uh, around the time of um, uh, Joff Capra's, um, uh, uh, one of Fritz Joff Capra's books, where he talked about a paradigm shift. I forget which, one it, uh, which book it was, but... Um, uh, which was doing the rounds in the Sangha at that time. And so he talked about the paradigm shift, like a, like a deliberate change in the way of seeing. So a paradigm is a, uh, like a, uh, a way of describing a situation or, or the, the model that you're, that you're using. So that um, it's uh, uh, the format for, uh, the, what you're, for describing what's, what's happening. And so that uh, in that uh, book, Fritjof Capri used this term, a paradigm shift. So... Lumpur used that term to refer to uh, this sort of change of, of view. So he, he'd say, we need a paradigm shift from me and my problems to the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. And so that that, uh, that ultimate subject, the Buddha, the uh, awakened awareness of our own heart, seeing the Dhamma, seeing the way things are, seeing that uh, in this moment life is this way. So that, um, and for myself, I found it was extremely uh, extremely helpful. I was uh, living here at Amravati at that, that time um, and uh, I just become, began to be aware of how strong a habit I had of worrying and being anxious and, and uh, afraid of, of everything and uh, that my basic relationship to life was one of anxiety and, and uh, being worried about anything and everything. And as I often said to people, my, the, the fundamental relationship of my mind to the world was if it exists, Worry about it. It's your, your kind of your obligation. It's like if 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 you are experiencing anything, your duty is to to worry about it. That's if you're not worried, you're not you're not doing your duty. So and it was such a strong uh, uh, effect 
in my life, such a strong presence. I didn't even notice I was doing it. I'd been a monk for six or seven years, seven or eight years. So you're a professional meditator, supposed to be watching your mind every day. And I, I, it was so strong, I just hadn't noticed it. It was just all there all the time. I'd never seen it as a, a thing. It was after listening to um, uh, Lumpur's teachings, and also particularly because he was talking in those, those days in the late 80s a lot about uh, mindfulness of emotion. And I just began to see, oh, this, this, uh, this worry is an emotion. This worry is a, it's a feeling. And it, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, so I began to, to, to look at that and explore it. And I was carrying around the idea, I've got a worry problem. I've got a fear problem. And with that, as a sense of, oh, I'm being honest about what's happening. I'm, I'm recognizing the actuality of what's going on here. And, um, and so uh, with the, uh, the effort to try and work with that, that worried feeling, that those, those habits of, of anxiety. But at the same time, then Lung was talking about, don't think of it as me and my problem. <laughs> think of it as the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. And so just as I was sort of picking that up as an issue, I could say, oh yeah, I tend, that's what's happening. Is that I've got a fear problem. I've got a worry problem. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an anxious person. That's what I am. That's, and, and he would point out, now what you, what's happening there is that you're creating the idea of an, a genuine independent person who is the actual owner of this, this thing. So that uh, the mind is saying, I am, I am a person. and This person is the owner of this problem. I, I have got a fear problem. I have got a lust problem. I have got a jealousy problem. I have got a, a complaining problem. Um, and so that uh, uh, even though on one level there might be the thing, well, if you're feeling a lot of jealousy, uh, then you might think, yeah, I've got a, I have got a jealousy problem and I, I, I do need to work on it. That unwittingly, unknowingly, the mind is picking that up and turning into me as an independent uh, entity who's the real owner of this thing called the jealousy problem anger problem, a lust problem, a fear problem. And that the mind is, is forming it into a, a paradigm of self-view. There's a me here who's the owner of this, this real thing. And so this was amazingly helpful advice on a very practical level uh, for me at that time because there was this, yeah, but I have got a fear problem. <laughs> I have. And that uh, <coughs> he would uh, say, if you change the paradigm to here is the awake mind seeing the way things are, then it becomes a bit more obvious that even though you say, I have got a fear problem or a lust problem or a jealousy problem, uh, that's not accurate. It's not the whole story because it's not there all the time. Maybe jealousy arises, but then it passes away. Or lust arises, it passes away. Fear arises, it passes away. You tell yourself it's there all the time, but it's not there all the time. Look, look, look. And then out of that encouragement to look and to be the awake, aware, the awareness that knows the issue that's arising, then you say, oh, that's right. Good heavens, the teacher's right. Amazing. <laughs> Who would have thought the, the, the Ajahn actually uh, was correct? It's, uh, the book's the turning point. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah, the the Fritjof Capra book, that's right, The Turning Point. Thank you. Um, so that, uh, so that was uh, amazingly helpful advice to see that, yeah, I tell myself I've got a fear problem. I was just sort of, quote unquote, getting to grips with that, but then realizing, ah, it doesn't help to say it's my problem. But seeing that, yeah, there are, it, it's not there all the time. I tell myself it's there all the time, but it isn't really. It comes and goes like everything else. Aha. 
And so that that shift, the paradigm shift um, to here is the awake mind seeing the way things are, um, was a, a, a re- extraordinarily helpful in both being more realistic, um, but also less personal. It's not seeing things in such a, a personal way. And then uh, recognizing that those feelings of fear or lust or jealousy or and, uh, whatever it might be, that they are patterns of nature that arise and pass away. They're not, there is no real person here who can be the owner of them. And there's no real solid permanent thing there. That sort of me who owns this thing is, is a, uh, a sort of perceptual mistake and that it doesn't have to be seen that way. It's just here's the aware mind knowing here's a wave of, of worry. It arises, it passes away. It uh, doesn't have to be believed in or, or suppressed or, or hated. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's that's that's very true. And uh, like for myself, the that that habit of worrying was very very strong. But uh, having made that a, a focus of attention for two or three years, that it really changed. So it just it's just not there in the, uh, in in the same way at all. It's radically changed. So uh, <clears throat> other aspects of my personality, being a talkative kind of person, that carries on. <laughs> that might change. I might become very silent and kind of suspect that won't happen. <laughs> so that uh, the, um, I think as Ajahn Jayasaro's description is, is very accurate. But certain traits are going to carry on. It's like uh, Ajahn Mahabur was famously sort of grumpy and uh, blunt. And, and so that... Uh, George Sharp often tells the story when he went to stay in in Wat Prabhantat in the 1970s and uh, had uh, uh, was am- amazed at how you know, he'd gone to invite uh, Ajahn Mahabur to come to England with Ajahn Paniwada to teach it in London and um, 
And he was just amazed at how rude Ajahn Mahabur was to him. And this kind of treated him really kind of disrespectfully and, and horribly. And, uh, and George is a pretty forthright person. Uh, he's, he's very um, uh, ready to speak his mind. And so through Ajahn Panyawado as a translator, he, he brought that out. He mentioned that to Ajahn Mahabur. He said, uh, I, you know, I'm kind of surprised. You know, I come here all the way from England and... Uh, to invite you to come and teach there, and I, I, I think I've behaved fairly well. Why are you so rude? Why are you so kind of? Why are you so na- you know, nasty and I- impolite to me? You know, it's this strange thing. And Ajahn Mahabur thought that was hilarious. He thought, oh, <laughs> oh, that's just my personality. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to be that way. I'm just I'm a coarse guy. You know, I'm a, I'm a rough guy. You know? And that uh, he uh, uh, he was. Um, that I'm not trying to be rude or you know, unpleasant. It's just uh, that's just how it comes out. So that uh, so certain traits will carry on. I think certainly the uh, that things will 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 fall away. Um, so like Ajahn Chah, his his uh, character, one of his character traits was to be very angry. He was a very sort of reactive and, and angry um, uh, person, and uh, <coughs> so that. He um, uh, had to work with that a lot as a as a monk living in community, and, and he was uh, extremely sort of critical and, and uh, reactive in terms of the other monks he lived with a lot of the time. And then uh, the, um, the the last, according to the stories, the sort of Wapapong legends, uh, the last time that uh, uh, Ajahn Chah really uh, uh, displayed any kind of defilement was when he. He lost his temper with a, a young novice. The novice had, had uh, in the in the sala, the novice had gone over to a water kettle and picked it up and just <laughs> standing up uh, in the in the sala and then just drank out of the spout of the kettle. So standing up and drinking while you're standing up is a no-no, and then drinking straight out the spout of the kettle is like a totally no-no. And so Ajahn Chah had just seen this and just. And just uh, exploded, and just kind of started, you know, running after the towards the the, the novice, or, or striding towards the novice, you know, with great speed across the sala. And the novice just turned and ran. <laughs> yes, I ran into the forest, and Ajahn Chah ran after him. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I think I think the novice got away, <laughs> but wasn't seen again. Um, but, Anyway, what uh, apparently what happened was that uh, then after that, Ajahn Chah went into his kuti, and nobody saw him for ten days. He didn't. Uh, he didn't come out. Didn't see anyone. And then uh, when he did emerge ten days later, he had this sort of big smile. Okay, that's done. <laughs> and that was uh, really the, the last time he displayed any kind of defilement. And then actually, so that that was it was a, like a burst of anger that. Um, was uh, the sort of really had helped him to bring his practice to finish his practice and to reach reach full enlightenment. But uh, anyway, some some years later, there was a yeah he was very anti superstition and would and didn't uh, go along with with people doing being fortune tellers or, or or astrologers and such like. But this guy came to visit who was a palm reader. That was his, he was a, he was a modu like a kind of a, 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 a kind of psychic. Um, Mordu would be like a 
you know, like an astrologer, a psychic type. And uh, he was trying to see Lumpur Cha's hands while Lumpur was kind of speaking, teaching. He was trying to get a look at his, his, his lines. And he thought, well, you know, Lumpur Cha really is anti this stuff, but I'm really curious. I'd really like to see his hands. And so after he'd been there for a couple of hours listening to Lumpur teaching, and he sort of gathered his, his courage and said, uh, Lumpur, Lumpur I, I know this is probably going to get me in trouble, but you know, I am a palm reader, and I, I'm really curious to see your hands. And then, uh, so then Lumpur said something to him like, "Oh, so, uh, so you, you, you know, you're going to tell me I'm going to win the lottery, or like, I'm going to find a nice young girl to get married to?" Or, and he kind of gave him a, a, a good working over, and sort of a, the, the the fellow sort of persisted patiently, and then Lumpur said, "Okay, take a look." And then uh, he he looked at his hands, and he said, and he was quite shocked. And he said, "Oh, Lumpur, this is this line here says." You have a lot of anger," and he said. "Yes, but I don't use it. <laughs> so that uh, even if that character trait might be there, then yeah, you know, and he'd recognize that, then there's no fuel for it. it does, he's not acting on it, or not. Not uh, the the mind could easily just recognize that. Well, that's that. Uh, that's finished. Or that's that's not. Uh, there's no inclination to follow that." So things that are like a destructive or unwholesome, but um, but then there's what they call vasana, or those those kind of traits or personality traits can still uh, still carry on, and so that like say Ajahnabo being kind of grumpy or speaking in a gruff way or using rude language, um, uh, also Sarip- Venerable Sariputta was famous for um, skipping over puddles. But, uh, Somebody, I was telling this story in a, in a, on a retreat last year, and someone took great exception to this. That they couldn't believe that the Venerable Sariputta would ever skip over puddles. But it's a, it's a commonly told story that uh, he, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, on the arms round, even in the, in the rainy season, then uh, as they're walking along with their bowls, sometimes you know, Sariputta would, come, would jump over the puddles. And people say, oh, he shouldn't be doing that. He's supposed to be the, the, the Lord's you know, chief disciple. You know, he shouldn't be kind of skipping over puddles like that. And then uh, they sort of complained to the Buddha that Sar- Venerable Sariputta was, was skipping over puddles like a little child. And he said, well, he was a monkey in a previous life. <laughs> and that, in that life, then he really liked skipping over puddles as a monkey. And so then that's just carried on into this lifetime. So he, it's, it's just a vastness. It's just a kind of a, a so that's a very commonly told story. And anyway, this one person on the retreat last year took great exception to the idea. He was even sending me quotes from the scriptures that showed that couldn't possibly be the case. But I feel it's um, those kind of uh, stories, they are, they are validated. There's another incident um, where there were two, two monks who were uh, from an uh, outcast family uh, with the Buddha. They were kind of a, um, the... Um, of lowest strata of Indian society, and uh, they, they were bhikkhus of the Buddha. And then they were the, there was another monk who uh, had been a Brahmin who was uh, they felt was being really rude to them and really disrespectful and and, uh, and uh, impolite. And they were so they were upset by this this, this monk's uh, conduct with them. So they went to the the Buddha and complained and said, you know, this this monk he's he's being really rude to us. We know that we're from we're from uh, uh, the 
outcast family, but you know, when we, we enter into the Sangha, then we leave all those considerations behind. You know, all caste is, is rejected when we go into the Sangha. Uh, and so this monk is re- being really you know, dis- disrespectful and rude to us. And the Buddha said, well, you, you have to understand that yeah, he's an arahant, so he can't possibly be uh, uh, speaking with any uh, sort of harmful intent or, or um, disrespectful intent. But he's been a Brahmin for the last 500 lifetimes. So he's got really strong traits. <laughs> and so uh, that, and that's a, 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 like a passage from the, from the canon, where it's, uh, it's exactly that kind of a, a thing. There's, a, there's a, a trait that carries on from a, a previous time. And there's a personality factor like that has continued, so it can be interpreted, or it's, uh, it looks from the outside like someone being conceited or, or arrogant. They felt that this Brahmin was being kind of arrogant, looking down on them. But there was, from the inside, there was nothing harmful, nothing unskillful there. But just like the the like a, the, an, ac- an accent that your voice has, that it's, it's it just carries on without any. Um, uh, any real substance to it, but the form persists. So that that um, don't expect every unwanted aspect of your personality to fade out. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> but uh, it, the the important thing is the the both the the quality of intention uh, and also um, you know living with other people, living in community. Then uh, your friends in the holy life will be able to tell you. Uh, do you know that you come across being really arrogant, or that, uh, or it can be the opposite? That sometimes people have a habit of uh, of feeling um, like they don't belong, or that they they are they're inferior, and they they apologize for existing all the time. So, well, do you realize that you're always apologizing? <laughs> oh, really? Uh, and so that those uh, the input that you get from your friends in the in the holy life can sort of can help you to uh, say. Modify or be aware of those things, even if there's no harmful intention. That you can recognize them and, and modify them. Okay, well, that hour has gone by again already. These, these fly by each day, so I'll leave it there for uh, for now, and we'll carry on. This talk is fairly long, so it goes on for a few more pages. So we'll leave it there for today. Sarang Tata Masih